I think the architecture part of the artificial practice is a lot harder to figure out how to to come up with those structures and and how to communicate what it is that you're doing because at least for my, my observation as as a relatively young practitioner in this field is that the sort of terrain of architecture practice that my dad's generation who started the firm and his peers experienced when they came out of school in the late 60s and early 70s just doesn't exist any longer and unless you're a relatively large sort of firm that's that's on a roll like it's impossible to replicate what practice was like back then i mean the technology is totally different the the expectations that clients have as a result of HGTV and the 20 minute uh, remodel in which you know there's a, a grand reveal and no one breaks the sweat all of that has has fundamentally changed the practice but the practice maybe hasn't changed in response to that and so i think there's a lot more models for like the restaurant typology but for architecture practice typology it's really hard to find sort of alternative ways of practicing and so a lot of this has just been sort of trial and error and sort of seeking our way blindly through trying to find ways to practice that are not not the default, not the way that we were sort of presented in, in school. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Christian Stainer, Managing Partner of Stainer Architects, for a fireside chat about how to design new models for practice. Stainer Architects is an architecture practice located in the Echo Park neighborhood of LA, not far from Dodger Stadium. Christian has 15 years experience in architectural design, project and construction management and development. His expertise includes designing and managing projects from conception through ongoing operations and works across scales from campus master planning to single family homes. He has consulted for governmental and non-governmental agencies, academic and cultural institutions, and private corporations. Christian's work has been exhibited at the Venice Architecture Biennale, California College of the Arts, the University of Virginia, and the Istanbul Museum of Modern Art. Before taking on his current role at Stainer Architects, he worked as an architect in Rotterdam and New York City for firms including the Office of Metropolitan Architecture, OMA, and Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Yes, absolutely. Well, so, um, you know, I, I think it would be really helpful to just describe a little bit about Stainer Architects and how the firm is currently comprised um, because it's very unique for those that are uh, you know tuning in. I think this is really insightful to understand like how someone's thinking through designing their practice through different services. So if you can walk us through, that'd be great. Absolutely. So we're actually a, a 50 plus year old practice that went dormant for about 15 years. And after an academic career that I stepped away from about five years ago, we sort of re refocused the practice and um, have uh, really focused our research in the last couple of years towards food systems work. So we're, not, we're, we're primarily an architectural practice, but we also do development and operations of a lot of our projects, and we occasionally also construct them. So we have a general contractor's license. So I guess the, the most sort of uh, brief way of saying it is we deal with the entire sort of pipeline of a project from 
conceptualization and development through design through to construction and then um, increasingly into operations. So maybe that, that's the, the, the short version of it. The work that we develop has tended to be in the food service hospitality sort of arena. So we have a, a wine bar that's been operational for a couple of years, a restaurant that we opened this past fall uh, that's about 80 to 100 seats. We have uh, an event space um, that is part of a, a National Register of Historic Places uh, house that, that we uh, restored and, and uh, got entitlements and, and permissions from the city in order to, to change the use from residential. We have a, a partnership with a 25-key hotel in a drive-to market in California um, that uh, we're, we're repositioning. It's, it was built originally in 1928, and we're taking on a limited partner role in that. We then also work for nonprofit organizations on a more sort of conventional architecture perspective um, in which uh, we're you know, doing more design services. So we're for example, working on a dining hall for a liberal arts college in Eastern California that is about midway through framing a uh, housing uh, component for that same campus um, that should be completed in a couple of months, uh, a music um, education facility for this long-running um, educational organization that's providing free music education throughout Los Angeles since uh, 1955. It's an outgrowth that LA Phil and we're, we're developing basically tenant improvements for, for their facilities in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, so that's, it gives you a sort of a, a scope of, of what we do. Yeah, to go off of that idea about scope, what's kind of interesting, I sometimes think about all these different ways that you're piercing beyond the more traditional architecture scope to simply deliver more complete contributions to the world. But what's kind of interesting, if you look at your website, you have very, very specific things that are very well articulated, it seems. So I'd love to hear how you think about moving between these and how you present these things as very, actually very specific contributions instead of like a broad, fluid, like it could, we could do anything kind of model. Sure. I mean, that's that's been something that we've been trying to figure out and, and is an ongoing, I don't know, experiment in, in terms of, you know, actually designing a practice in, in addition to doing the design within the practice. So yeah, we've been we've been trying to sort of compartmentalize what we how we present ourselves to potential clients because that mouthful of being a variety of different or playing a variety of different roles within within any one project is is sort of more than than most clients are able to to understand that in fact those things are very nested together. They're not us being um, unfocused and and bouncing between um, different different roles or industries um, but in fact hand off from one to the next uh, you know we've in some of the the residential work that we would we were have been doing uh, we realized that there was uh, a great uh, focus on hillside residential in Los Angeles and and beyond and so we've uh, over the last year have been sort of uh, giving that its own identity and communicating that scope of work to potential clients separate from the, the other work that we're, we're doing around more on, on food service and, and food systems um, based work. It's, it's not that they're totally 
disconnected. In fact, it's the same people in, in our very small office that are engaged in, in both types of projects. There's a lot of overlap, but in, in terms of how we're trying to, to communicate that, we're, we're finding that it's, it's useful to be much more specific and, and detailed than just being a firm that can do everything and maybe nothing at the same time. From externally, it seems like your approach is to be very client-centric, meaning like you're really trying to meet the client where they're at. And so you're sort of redesigning even the way you present yourself in order to meet them where they're at, right? To reduce some of that, the complexity or the the noise that might come with saying like, we're an architecture firm that does everything, right? Because sometimes that can be perceived as like, you do nothing, right? You're, you're not as like specialized for their needs. Do you think that I mean, there's like a part of it that feels very complicated because of the fact that you're adding this additional layer to with various identities, but the back of house or the, the whole team that's delivering it is still the same. Is it tricky to then know ultimately, like, where did someone come from? Or is that actually not too much of a challenge? Like to know whether someone came in from this brand or versus like Stainer Architects or versus some other like uh, channel, I guess, to use marketing lingo. It really hasn't been so far, um, in part because we just we do very few projects very deeply. So we're not we're not a high volume practice. Uh, I would say a lot of the projects that we work on, especially I mean even residential projects, because they're in hillside areas with incredible amounts of regulations and hearings and entitlements and reviews that you have to go through. I mean those are at minimum two plus year projects, and oftentimes they stretch much longer. Same with you know restaurant development related work. So no, it's it's not it's not been an issue. We have discovered that people will respond to say a a more public space that we've done and then transition to a client for a residential project or or vice versa. Um, and you know that those sort of internal or or how, how we divide up. Our, our self-presentation to the world really hasn't been an issue in terms of people jumping between those different identities once once we have a relationship with them. Christian, um, I'd suggest to everybody who's in the conversation today, take a look at stainerarchitects.com. The visual experience of actually navigating through these, the execution, it's all in the details, which is all very beautifully done. I'm curious, Christian, as you've been being very specific about these different pursuits, like the hillside homes or food systems, I can't help but wonder what that process was like for you to define these and articulate them in a cohesive way. And I wonder what reference points have been helpful for you to establish that as, as a work of design, because I'm thinking about great restaurants in LA, you actually are in the, in that market yourself. Like, there are so many examples of beautifully executed, highly specific experiences. And I wonder if those have, you know, you've, you feel kind of a peer to that world, but just, yeah, I'd love to hear more about the process of identifying and be very specific in how you execute presenting what this is, what this business is to the world. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's been challenging to, to do that. And I'd say it doesn't come in each of these cases, this this has been an evolution, and there's been a lot of sort of internal documents where we try to sort of narrow down and synthesize. And I think we have a few more sort of versions of that in order to get 
in the in the direction that that I hope we can go. But yeah, the 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 sort of identity of an architecture practice and a restaurant is sort of in some way they're they're very different in that the the restaurant experience maybe is a more rigid structure that people expect <laughs> you know there's there's certain customs and and spatial sequences and experiential sort of elements that you can play with then it's it's pretty controllable i mean like you want the lighting to make people look sexy you want the you know experience of coming in to be one of excitement um you have all of these these different obviously very short period of time that you can capture people's attention and sort of get buy-in from them and um you know with architecture it's a much more protracted long process so it's a bit like dealing with a, a sprint versus a, a marathon but I, th I think the architecture part of the architectural practice is is a, a lot harder um, to figure out how to to come up with those structures and and how to communicate what it is that you're doing because at least for my, my observation as as a relatively young practitioner in this field is that the the sort of terrain of architecture practice that my dad's generation um, who started the firm and his peers experience when they came out of school in the late 60s and early 70s just doesn't exist any longer and unless you're a relatively large you know sort of firm that's that's on a roll like it's it's impossible to to replicate what what practice was like back then i mean the technology is totally different the the expectations that that uh, clients have as a result of hgtv and the the 20 minute uh remodel in which you know there's a, a grand reveal and no one breaks sweat all of that has has fundamentally changed the practice but the practice maybe hasn't changed in response to that and so i think there's a lot more models for like the restaurant typology but for architecture practice typology it's really it's really hard to find sort of alternative ways of practicing and so a lot of this has just been sort of trial and error and seeking our way blindly through um trying to find ways to practice that are not um not the default not the way that we were sort of presented in in school as, as someone that has kind of gone off the beaten path, right? Like I myself went to grad school for architecture, landscape architecture for undergrad, um, shortly thereafter went into tech. And one of the biggest challenges was sort of in that change was almost like the perception of what you're doing relative to everyone else, right? Like you feel a little bit outsider-ish in a sense. I'm curious if for you, you had a very similar feeling about like starting to like explore these things in a very different way, what relative to everyone else or for you was it more of just a really internal exercise you know how like some people are very much about like i don't really I, like every it, competition is just noise i just like i should be only competing against myself in some sense like i'm only trying to like improve what i'm trying to do so you know just f for you to kind of steer off into this different way of presenting yourself doing this type of model has has it been challenging in that front for you or were you kind of just playing a different game mentally maybe playing a different game but it's it's no it's no doubt been been challenging i mean a mm -hmm. lot of this has come out of growing up in an architecture family and you know the the young experience of smelling gum erasers and blueprint uh, ammonia and things like that 
and and seeing how cyclical the the, the practice is and and how much at least in in southern california for a long time i think it's gotten away from this um recently but has been tied to real estate economics that are very hyper localized to to this um market and trying to find other ways in which we're not um we're not existing as a as a practice and i'm not sort of <laughs> investing my life into making other people lots of money and getting cut out of that or screwed over by clients who don't pay or 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 projects that go go bust and so a lot of it has just been sort of being more independent and and self supporting in that you know if if we're going to spend x number of hours arguing with the contractor about getting something done according to the drawings that we did why don't we just spend that time building it ourselves and not having to go through the contractor as an intermediary and you know spend that effort and and the same amount of a risk effectively with the client um, in just doing it ourselves. Or similarly, you know, why why spend all that effort going after a client when we could put together the deal that would allow for us to be looking at a project, not just when it's handed to us after someone's purchased a property and is now trying to figure out what to do, but that we're actually using our knowledge and ability to see beyond what's already there to come up with a pro forma and evaluate the the feasibility and viability of of, um, of a project and put together the financing and things like that so and that's that's sort of <laughs> bled over into operations um and you know rather than just developing something and selling it which we've been doing in some cases it's also been well let's hold on to it let's continue to to operate it rather than having say a tenant that you know there's a risk to um why don't we step in and and set up the operational component of that to have a more consistent uh, income stream so especially around like food service um coming out of grad school in 2008 maybe two or three months before lehman brothers uh collapsed and the entire architecture economy went belly up and and will probably never be the same going forward it, it seemed very clear that that just relying upon you know hourly services one was just not scalable and there had to be some other way of uh, approaching architectural practice that wasn't just about doing more hours or hiring more people to do more work because you then have to bring in that work and it just it doesn't really work you know you have to somehow come up with a way of multiplying the amount of effort that you can do once and have it result with with greater greater impact whether that's through income or the sort of impact that it has beyond uh, a financial condition in terms of improving the community that you're in or so forth and so yeah we we, we decided that that would be in in food service and of course that seemed like a good idea until the the pandemic happened and from architecture in 2008 to restaurants in 2020. Uh, I think I've sort of now seen the, hopefully the bottoms of both of those industries and sort of the hardest moments to, to make it through both. So I mean, bad timing. What, what, what is very refreshing about sort of how you're describing the journey of, in the decision-making as to why you went into these different uh, models even, right? Because a lot of people would kind of consider them as models. It's the idea that it can be done, where I think 
there's this sort of self-limiting perspective that a lot of people come out of school because they might not have the right models in place to kind of observe and see how things are done or just like, you know, the right um, examples in the industry. But just the idea, like actually you can parlay your experiences into these things that they're actually not as difficult or, you know, they all, everything has this challenge, but at least it's not outside of the reach of an architect to come out of school and like apply their way of thinking to these different types of businesses. It's almost like you just have to figure out kind of work backwards as if it were a design project to some degree of like, how would we actually make this happen? What do we need to bring on? But it is doable. Like this model of being able to get a GC license and actually take on some of that responsibility as well. It is possible. Yeah, it's it's definitely possible. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was very fortunate that I had a couple of scholarships through school that allowed for me to to graduate and not have heavy student loans hanging over me. So that that's one factor for sure to be able to um, to, to take those alternative pathways and and the risks that are associated with them. But yeah, I think it, it also requires a lot of self-education <laughs> and a lot, you know, a willingness to continue uh, learning things that are very foreign to architecture. And I think a lot of that is also business and which believe just from as as a as a former academic you know does not come into discussions within schools of architecture is seen as sort of a something that is dirty in response to the the sort of purity of, of design but in fact they're incredibly connected if you want to look at it even just in who gets to, to have design and and the inequality of wealth in the u.s right now and and where where most architecture practice focuses as a result of that. So yeah, it just it just requires a lot of sort of education on the periphery of the practice that isn't necessarily say design in in its pure form, but impacts then how do you how do you look at the design of the processes that you're doing? How does it look at you look at the design of the practice overall, um, your interactions with prospective clients and so forth. And the, not even business, but also being a GC, being a developer, like it's incredible the different models of discipline that you must, you yourself, and then your team. I'm so wish there was a way that we could like put it all out there to so people could see like what connections you've found, what differences you've discovered. Could you help us understand a little bit about what have been some of the core like mental model shifts that you, in order to like switch between these contexts yourself and your team, like how do you like enter into the mind of the GC or enter into the mind of the developer, operator, overall business leader? How do you jump into those different contexts? What what are the like principles that are like changing in your head or your team's mind or when you're just so you you, you have the yeah. tools on the table um, with your team? Like how are you shifting between those different disciplines? In large part, it's because there's there's different people involved in different aspects of let's say our practice or you know beyond our practice so we have a core staff of i guess six or seven right now architect trained you know trained architects um a number of them have different experiences outside of architecture uh whether it's more into construction or into uh business or, or marketing but they're they're engaged in architectural practice as considerate in just probably every practice 
they're just more involved in the operations of of our practice because we are small and there's we can't have dedicated um, marketing team or operations person or accounting, which ends up on me. And then we have a hospitality management group. So there's about five people in that. And there's there are some overlaps between them. Like we'll, we, we had a GM of one of our projects that we were opening, worked out of our office for a year and a half or so as we were opening the project. And so she was involved in you know the, the architecture discussions and at 4 p.m. Uh, two days a week, there was like wine reps who were coming through and tasting things. And when, when there's questions about where sh- should something go operationally uh, within a project, it's really great to have people who, you know, are going to look at it from, from that perspective after it's completed, even if it's very, very early on in, in a project. And so we try to make use of those, um, those overlaps. Um, some of the consultants that we have for you know our restaurant operations um, become consultants for our design projects as well for for educational clients. So they'll they advise on you know uh, financial modeling for cash flow um, for for a wine bar, and they'll also provide you know as part of a package uh, with with a a client um, looking at how they can change their financial operations for a cafeteria or something of that sort. So we try to, there, there is a lot of overlap between these different aspects. I wouldn't say that it's, it, it's not as if I spend sort of Wednesday mornings doing one thing and Thursday afternoon doing another. Um, they tend to all sort of happen simultaneously at once. Um, and we've been very fortunate that we've had and, and recruited and made contact with, um, you know, architecture graduates who will be involved in a project during the design per- period and then end up being a field supervisor when we construct it. Or that, uh, you yeah, are, are involved further into sort of operations after the project is completed in terms of FFD or you know continuing involvement in graphics and branding and stuff like that. This um, you mentioned this uh, kind of consultants that kind of come in to provide financial modeling things. That is that is that part of this when when you say like they they're brought in? Is it that you, they're part of your services in a sense? Like are you offering that through through like the architecture service or is that discrete to the hospitality component of what you're providing? Um, and if so, like, let's say if it is discrete, is there any benefit to like start to think about architecture practice through that lens as well, where you can just find these other consultants that can add value in a different way to like the design that you're implementing? Absolutely. Um, so we, we, we've, uh, similarly to how we found uh, that a lot of the residential work that we were being asked to, to be involved in was in hillside, sort of tricky hillside challenging locations and realized that we should just take that on as our as our focus and and demonstrate our capacity to do that where a lot of practices just don't don't have the sort of experience and and knowledge of how to get through the 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 challenges of that um we we also realized that a lot of our interests uh was around food systems um so not not specifically restaurants although that's what we're you know our sort of investments in all operations are in, but food service more broadly, 
or food, food systems more broadly into agriculture, into um, communal dining environments, into uh, gardens and, and um, other spaces where it's more instructional. And so one of the things we were very close to, to launching a resource, online resource called Tools and Utensils, where we realized there were, there's a lot of interest um, institutionally in, in uh, changing the way that food in the U.S. is people interact with it. So a number of different, I think UCLA just launched a new um, interdisciplinary food studies program this past institute, this past um, week. Um, a, a number of other schools are, are assembling these, these types of programs, but there really isn't sort of architectural practices that have taken taken on food systems as their as their focus. There's tons that do art, restaurants and academic dining halls and things like that, but not really looking at the holistic complexity of what seems like a very, very specific focus. And so in order to make these projects work to help clients understand what the potential is for their project, we have a series of different consultants and collaborators that we can pull in with us to um, to these projects to make them happen. And so that there's sort of almost like attachments to us <laughs> in order to make it so that we can, let's say, credibly and um, effectively implement, you know, the elements that are going to make a project actually work. So whether it's the financial aspect of it, or it's, um, you know, might not be a conventional landscape architect who is needed to design a productive garden. And so we have someone who can be working on that aspect of it, it might be looking at the waste systems that come out of it, or we have an operational consultant who can come in with us to help institutional food operations, um, you know, bring in a more diverse uh, sourcing of where they're getting products from. So it's not just from U.S. Foods and Cisco, but it might be from um, minority farmers or you know small agricultural outfits and how that gets um, aggregated and used institutionally. So really, the the design is is in part the overall process and sort of potential for the client, as well as the the physical space that we're designing as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 sorry, Chris, one quick. I'm just so there's a there's a there's a diagram in my mind that's kind of like a dotted line relationship between what you're describing and sort of like just your background having worked at places like OMA and you know I think your educational background is also from the GSD. There's something about the research component of what you're what you're describing, right? It's like the application of research, whereas like OMA at a certain point might have taken you know when you think about the book on uh, on China or Lagos or on retail, right? It's like it's almost like these are these are ways in which to open up a line of inquiry potentially for a practice in which to develop work, and that was kind of like that. That's kind of their 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 op, their their operating manual, sort of about that, right? The way they operate, it's like we want to open up, explore a market. Let's do intensive research and kind of like build up expertise, build up that network of collaborators, and then apply. It seems like you've really figured out somewhat of uh, the application of that that mental model in a way, that way of operating to food systems in a way that's like hyper, very productive because 
I don't know, from my perspective, it always seems like if there's anything architecture was really good at was that the organization, like logistics was really what architecture should sort of be rebranding itself as. It's like, it's ultimately how, how the world over time is changing. And some firms are very good at like telling that narrative of that change over time and describing it in projects. I feel like you're, you're, you're one example of an interesting firm that's been able to take it to the degree of like, actually, this is part of our revenue model, or like, this is actually part of our, how we, how we develop projects and think holistically about the development of projects, not just only within the domain of like, like uh, being hired for services, whereas like, OMA, their shortcoming might've been that they never got into development, right? So they could never have applied that practice, all that research, all that thing into being their own client. They had to wait for others to, to come mm -hmm. to them. Uh, it's more of a comment than a question, I guess. It's just like really, <laughs> uh, really fascinating to kind of draw potentially the line um, to to that. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, um, but I think it's a it's a really good observation. Certainly, the short time that I was at OMA, and I I was pulled in to do that Lagos book, and then ended up working in the the Danish Architecture Center uh, sort of mixed use project that they did with um, Real Dania, the the state based um, developer there. But this, this, this sort of our focus on on food systems has actually came out of academic work that I was doing when I was teaching and courses that were like in food studies and architecture. And I taught a, a seminar with my my partner um, uh, when we were at University of Michigan um, in the, the liberal arts program that was specifically on food systems and did a traveling studio in which we looked at uh, agrarian landscapes and wine production and that literally became the sort of research that a business came out of that exists now called Tilda Wine, in which I was just self-educating about how, how does traditional wine impact the, the traditional wine production related to the landscapes that that was produce, produced in. Um, so we we're looking at California and, and um, Italy and, and Croatia and, and how preservation of landscapes were, were tied to agricultural uses. So. Yeah, it is. It is very much this sort of academic uh, practice gone a bit wild, um, to the point that you know the the sort of conceptual research was turned into something as much as possible that was sort of both real, not in like the sense of making a pavilion as as demonstration of how you know a bunch of forms can come together or or be um, constructed, but really like how does how do these bigger ideas about um, sort of how architecture engages the world get turned into something that that exists on its own life rather than waiting for a client to come by, come come around and, and do it for us or you know make it happen for us and you're a small and versatile team pushing the boundary on models of practice by learning like i, I love that you mentioned how there's a ton of learning that you are having to do in research how do you scope that out internally to create uh, rhythm or boundary or, or milestones as the team is like accumulating knowledge and then trying to find a way to put it into practice? Uh, and, and how does it relate to non-billables? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. cause you, ha you really do have an operational mindset but you also have a very open uh, like research mindset as well. I'm curious how you're able to, you know, deal with both of those as, in the operations of your firm with your team and helping them navigate the context switching and the scoping of that internally, just 
I'd love to hear how you think through that, how you structure that with the team. Over time, that's the thing that I think a lot of people are curious about. It's like, how does this work in, in terms of time and how does it relate to the other obligations that the firm has? I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I don't think we're that good at that, but I, that's probably true of a lot of practices and certainly the ones that are maybe more on the side to a research-based practice than a practice that is about volume, pumping out lots of work and doing as quickly as possible and repetitively. And I mean, we're, we've been working and it's, it's been a very slow and painful process to, to have more systems in place for certain activities, knowing that certain things we can do, whether it's, you know, client education up front or how we go about, um, gathering information from a client, a lot of it has to do with sort of client-based interactions. The more that we can make that sort of regularized and, and systematized, the more it frees us up to be doing, spending time on, on design exploration and investigation. But it's, it's been a lot of investment in research, <laughs> which is, is, means very, it just, it, that's a, a challenge and a, and a, a sort of financial demand and, and um, risk and uh, to, to do that for, for a practice. Um, but yeah, I think part of it has just been that by virtue of being our own clients, we've found certain, um, I wouldn't say efficiencies, but in some ways it's the complete opposite. But rather in, in certain cases, we've gone down the road where rather than hiring an external consultant, um, and having to find them and manage them, we've just decided that we'd, we'd learn that information on our own. So whether it's, you know, lighting design or into some, some aspects, elements of construction, which we, you know, will probably never go again. I, I have no interest in working on detailing out rebar um, for a project or, you know, whether it's, it's still a good idea to have um, the, the entire architecture office show up at 5 a.m. to help, you know, pour concrete and pull pull the, the pump lines and things like that. I mean, it's really helpful. It's really useful for all of us to sort of have exposure to understanding how those things work and what the physical effort of it is and you know what the sequences that are involved in it. It takes the process of drawing a project or modeling in the computer and, and makes it a very different sort of understanding of it. But we have we have sort of by trial and error found like what are the things where our efforts and knowledge are best served and and where they where where should we not go and you know leave others that that can do it more efficiently and effectively than us have have collaborators in that way. So the idea has been like let's know as much of what the terrain is as possible, even if that's you know learning about drain vent and waste plumbing <laughs> um, and which fittings you can use on their back or you know if you can use a combi here and a quick turn 90 here and what the codes are around that but I, I think that yeah as, as we've been maturing as a practice we've we've also sort of narrowed down what the what the highest and best use of our time and efforts are I think related to that what would be the kind of categories of of things that you think the firm either has already systematized to a degree where it's like you've removed either uh, points of friction on, in the green room. We talked a little bit about like the productization as a concept of like 
what can you take from your services and get it to the point where you don't have to rely so much on thinking about um, the time investment because you have it dialed in to the point where you can then look at value, like charging on value as opposed to it because you you just honed it in. I'd be curious, what, what, what have you learned on that front? Yeah, I mean, some of this has been possible, I guess, because again, of being our own client in certain projects, like it just needs to get done. And so writing the scope is not necessary because in the end it's going to land back on us as the developer or operator to to get certain things to happen um i think that what we've in looking at that that lack of boundaries and then applying it to more conventional client-based work we have discovered that that certain activities if they can be productized or i guess you could call it systematized or or um like we're starting, for instance, with our residential work to um, effectively offer a sort of the first, not necessarily due diligence scope, but sort of early on scope for a project as a specific uh, package that is already pre-written, that we do try to do minimal amount of adjustment to it, that it has a, there is a, a sort of sliding scale according to sort of size of the project and the location of it and, and the circumstances of the of the potential client. But that's that's a way that we've been trying to set up a, a sort of gate to the work that we do and and um, also to make sure that we get some amount of fee for those sort of initial conversations with clients that may go somewhere or may not and and keep them really short and and provide them with an easy entrance into to our services and also the ability for us to qualify them to, to make sure that they you know, have the resources that are necessary to undertake the project that they're looking at to help them narrow down the project. I mean, that's often for any client, right? The, the problem is making sure that what you're thinking you're gonna do and what they actually end up needing or wanting tie together. So we spend a lot of time upfront trying to make sure that there's minimal changes later on in the, the life span of the project um, once they're they're harder to do and and more produce more conflict and and um, uh, cost and so forth yeah so that's the I mean rather than it being like here's we we have looked a little bit at pre-existing or let's say pre-approved plans or sort of designs that can be productized in the sense of a product. And I think the services productized is, is much more um, a viable option for us. It also doesn't have to assume all of the liabilities that producing products rather than services you end up taking on. What are there like uh, business, maybe business is the right word, maybe brand is the right word. You, you talked about one about the food system, which is the, the tools and utensils concept and then um, hillside homes. You also have been awarded for, I think, like restoration projects. Have you also considered that or are you currently forming it as another very specific concept? No, I don't, I don't think we're a historic preservation uh, practice. <laughs> we get it, we get, we, we did a project as a developer that was a very unusual 1954 experimental home that we purchased from a city of Palm Desert in, in Southern California, in the Coachella Valley, that they were they were forced to put up for sale because the, the agency that they purchased 
the house with, with the intent of tearing it down for affordable uh, senior housing was discontinued by the state. And so they had to liquidate their assets and we, we were able to acquire it. Um, and we did this really extensive restoration of the house and, and partnered with the city in order to get the entitlements that allowed for it to be used in a commercial way rather than just a, a residence. And you know the the restoration historic preservation work was sort of a byproduct of it rather than a specific focus. I think I have I have challenges with with historic preservation just as a an industry within within the U.S. that are a separate discussion. But um, it was it was it's been very interesting to to also get a bunch of of recognition for our historic preservation work, which I think we tried to do in a, a fairly different way than is, is typical to most uh, approaches to historic preservation. But it's, it's very time intensive and technically requires a lot of sort of technical knowledge. And, and uh, on that project was incredibly fortunate to, to have a project architect who was dedicated to that and, and able to take it on. What would you say are your, um, as, a, as the leader in the firm or one of the leaders in the firm, um, what are the top things that are like top of mind for you going into this year? Either things that, you know, we hear a lot about hiring as one big bottleneck, like what are the big concerns that, you know, not to be too extreme, but could say like, keep you up at night? <laughs> I have to imagine a lot of it is just like typical business operation stuff, right? Making sure that money is in the right place and people know what they're supposed to be doing and you know that there there's uh the right balance between providing guidance and allowing for people to learn from mistakes and and have the sort of space to uh to to figure things out um on their own but you know i think i think in the long term for the year that the challenge really is for us is is moving clients to understand our services and the value that we add to a project um, beyond just selling our hours. And how to do that, it's it that seems to me one of the sort of intractable problems of the profession right now from a business perspective, is how to re-educate a an audience for which sort of pricing is still very fixed. And, and maybe part of that is just that most people don't know what architects do or you know what the cost of the services are, but it, it seems that somehow we're supposed to price for less than the actual cost of running a practice. You know, any <laughs> any profit or sort of completely put aside. And, and that seems to be a real sort of wall that at least I feel like sort of driving head first into. So I, I, I'm interested <laughs> to know, I mean, there's other, if you look for sort of discourse around that, there's a lot in advertising, mm -hmm. there's some in other types of professional services like attorneys or accountants, but they, they all have different sort of considerations to what they're doing than we do, or they have ways to multiply their time or to distribute it out to paralegals or you know, to take um, a portion of a settlement that's awarded or something like that, or, or to, to get a bunch of people together and, and produce a, 
you know, class action <laughs> um, right. in which one lawsuit, you know, produces a whole bunch of effectively settlements. So I, I just, the challenge has really been like, what are the other models to find for multiplying our efforts to do, to be able to do more? And that's just not make more money, but also like have more impact beyond say the, the individual clients that we're able to work with. Some of the people I think we've interviewed in the past or at least in the in the trajectory of some firms, I can think of like firms in New York that, you know, they kind of made their name from just like finding that one client that had a scalable model, like in retail, right? So it's finding that one client that is like the gap and that once you had the gap early on and when they started, you had the whole pipeline of projects moving into it. And that's one method of, of going about that. You know, in, in the software side, sometimes when you hear, especially like when you're thinking about like enterprise selling, in, in software, it's a lot about like need finding. And so you hear a lot about those conversations always end up being about the qualitative questions you're asking the, the buy, the potential buyer, what's the pain point and like drilling down really into like the, those areas. And it, it's something for us to reflect on. I think Chris too, just like how could we provide some of that education too, from our own, from, or just as an example, right? Like bring on people that talk about sales specifically in value in the context of, 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 of presenting value as maybe one resource for, for, for guests themselves. But I, you, we see it in different contexts, at least in technology, where a lot of it can be pinpoint. It's, it's almost in the process, really, of how do you dig through the needs that a potential client or customer has and then position yourself according to that pain point that they're facing. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, I think there is, it's, there, there are obviously like in professional services, it could be a little bit more challenging, but maybe with going back to your whole point of like focusing on food systems, there's something there that's like really, really worthwhile. Actually, there's a comment from Marjan Pearson, longtime fan of the show, assuming that Christian has defined ROI differently for their own projects for which they provide services. Is he working with other clients to redefine it? for their projects. Oh, that's, yeah. So it's kind of like going back to this, like, are you, can you go back and like redefine ROI for them in a sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, we, we haven't maybe discussed it internally in exactly those terms, but, you know, vast majority of our clients right now are nonprofit organizations um, for whom are, they don't look at it necessarily in ROI. I mean, they're very, you know, they're concerned about budget, but honestly for, Nonprofit organizations like raising for a facility is much easier undertaking than raising for operational costs. And so we've been, I mean, their ROI is a mission that they're trying to push forward, whether that's educating students or, you know, addressing some larger problem in society. I, th I think the interesting one that we've been trying to, to sort of approach it as is not just here's another concert hall on your campus or another library or something like that. But here is a, an operational issue that a lot of campuses have to deal with. And that's, you know, the food service component of it or agricultural sourcing or interdisciplinary studies. And, and how could you, how could the building not just, how could the building's design and, and overall conceptualization go beyond just coming in on budget and providing a nice space and, you know, functioning well, but also have an impact on those ongoing costs, not, 
not only you know how much energy or water it uses or waste it produces or how it deals with that, but but also like what is the staffing that you need to, to have? Because that's a really critical component to an ongoing operational viability of an institution if you have to hire five more people. And same, same with a restaurant. I know this from experience, right? If you put something in the wrong place and you have to then duplicate the efforts and there's two people standing there doing half the labor because they have to be separated, like that, that really changes the economics of the project beyond just that initial build-out cost. So that's really, I guess, in some ways what we're what our sort of positioning is in order to provide more of a comprehensive understanding of, of what the impacts are of the, the design beyond just it being a nice space that's put together with an attention to detail and aesthetic enjoyment and so forth. Listeners of the show will know that I like love to explore manufacturing and ideas in manufacturing because in, in like the most modern sense of manufacturing, not the like, you know, Dungeness uh, coal factory, but rather like the kinds of manufacturing where cars are produced, it's like pristine, incredible robots. <laughs> I kind of think about when you mentioned how like shifting spatial problems that actually have a consequence on adding staffing, adding resourcing because of inefficiency. We don't think of them in a manufacturing context, but it seems like one of the only places that actually realizes there's a spatial impact of staffing or on output or bottleneck is like manufacturing uh, and recognizing that a kitchen to some degree in the best sense is production. I yeah, how exciting that you are applying these ideas in the context of like an institution um, on a campus, different spatial scales that are, I mean, not very surprising considering you have reached into the beyond of these other ideas of scope and how architecture can affect it. So really exciting. We have run out of time. <laughs> so I want to reserve the last final words uh, to George's closing question. Yeah, my closing question here, I'll do it quick for everyone's time is, uh, we love to ask it here. It's what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Can run the gamut of answers here. So I, I would say it's not like a, an, a singular event, but I think, I think actually just trust, I guess me, but also the practice overall has been, you know, each time that that happens and that, that we can keep that trust is, is really an amazing gift. Whether it's from you know clients or or collaborators or even just sort of neighbors, that that's that's really when I feel like we've been successful. Is 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 when it's been clear that we've we've gained that trust and we've we've held it. Amazing! Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Well, with this, I uh, just want to conclude. Thanks everyone for joining us. Um, thank you, Christian, for uh, such a wonderful explanation of the practice and being able to dive deep into how you think and how your team operates, uh, really illuminating and inspiring. Yeah, it's like being able to apply research to this degree, you don't hear or see that enough, right? That there is an avenue for research to actually provide a viable practice sometimes. So, so, so many times you hear about sort of the struggling artist, almost too often you hear about the struggling artists in some sense because of the too focused on academia, but I feel like you've been able to make that leap over into practice from research into practice in a way that's, you know, uh, sustainable. I mean, it seems like it, it's going. Hopefully. We'd love yeah. to connect with other, other practitioners that are trying out different models too. Yeah. 
And Chris, thank you so much for joining me as well. As always, uh, thanks everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.